Good morning, and welcome back to the Exeter University Podcast Society podcast feed. In this episode, our Vice President Caitlin and our Gensec Ella interview Johnny Sims himself, who you may know from his work as the writer and protagonist of the Magnus Archives. Together they unearth a variety of questions, such as star signs in Magnus and the crimes Johnny's cats have committed. So please do enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Caitlin. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the vice president of Exeter University Podcast Society. And I'm Ella. I use they, them pronouns, and I am the general sec of Exeter University's Podcast Society. Today with us, we have Johnny Sims, who's most well known as the writer and the voice of the Magnus Archives. He's also an author. He's published two horror novels and creates tabletop role-playing games as part of MacGuffin and Company. Thank you so much for being here. No problem. Hi, uh, I'm Johnny. Uh, he, him. I'm going to start off with the most obvious question, but what is the inspiration behind the Magnus Archives? I mean, to a certain degree, a, a lifetime of loving horror. Um, I would, so I could sort of chart my progress through the genre as I grew up, and I think all of it will like found finds its way somewhere uh, into the Magnus Archives. So, I started off with what I describe as like your sort of your classic English ghost stories, so M.R. James uh, and that sort of slightly removed slightly academic sounding um sort of tale and then progressed through lovecraft um as you know a lot of people do which obviously uh, added in a lot of cosmic elements in this idea of huge terrible uncaring powers uh toying with mankind and then most in the in the recent run-up to the magnus archives uh, i had a, a night shift job and I was listening to a. This was before the big sort of horror podcast boom at the time. I think there was there was Pseudopod, uh, No Sleep podcast had just started up, um, and there were one or two others. But it was a long way before you know that like the big boom. And so I found this old archive of old uh, radio shows, uh, things like Lights Out from the nineteen forties, which would advertise you ionized yeast. Uh, in between every episode, or uh, tell you how many doctors recommended Camel cigarettes. Um, and also at the time I was, um, getting into sort of online creepypasta and like the sort of the, the online, uh, the sort of the precursor to your modern YouTube unhorror sort of stuff. Um, and so like all of that kind of poured into a big, a big pot of, uh, so, you know, your ghost story, cosmic horror, but with a certain degree of direct, because the the whole creepypasta thing is often like this thing happened to me i am telling it to you direct as it happens which cuts out a lot of the sort of literary stylings all through the all through the idea of like oh you know what you know what's really effective like audio horror just sort of a story being was poured into your ears uh, and so i i loved I love creating ridiculously intricate metaplots, uh, which I think actually, rather than uh, horror or, or literature or anything like that, comes from my history with tabletop role-playing games, because I used to love constructing huge elaborate campaigns that realistically you'd only get five sessions into before you know uh, people's attention shifted. But uh, all of that together very much, um, you know, pop that in the oven and out comes the Magnus Archives. What did you think about, like, when you started making it, what were the things that you thought you did correctly, like, 
like recommending to other people what to do when they're starting out? I think we, while the scope of Magnus expanded uh, as we went along in terms of what we had resources to do, uh, you know, when we started, it was very much just me, Alex, and a lapel mic. And by the end, we had, you know, huge multicasts and... Um, for, for a while, we had in, in Alex's house, there was a, a little sort of in-house studio space, which obviously, during the pandemic, went the way of, of home recordings. But yeah, but while our, our resources expanded, we very much started at the production value that we were going to uh, continue at. And I, I can take very little credit for that. That was almost entirely uh, Alex and Rusty Quill. Um, and the one thing that was actually quite good was the conceit of the tapes ended up sort of papering over a multitude of uh, a multitude of sins in that you know a, a comparatively cheap lapel mic versus a high-end vocal mic uh, if you're running them through the EQ so that they sound like old cassette tapes they come out sounding pretty similar so yeah that gave us a real boost of like kind of starting as we mean to continue uh, also the fact that we had while uh, obviously the intricacies of the plot developed and changed and shifted across the course of writing. We had a strong idea of the skeleton of the show, um, of where it was going, where it was, where we were planning to end it pretty early on. So we were able to sort of seed things right from the start. So it all, it all together gives it a sense of, I think, cohesiveness. It, I think it is a, a show that avoids the common sort of podcast problem of taking a while to find your feet which can often i mean it, which is you know understandable because most shows most people are kind of learning as they go and i was i was quite lucky in that alex already had a decent amount of experience in this sort of thing from doing rusty core gaming previously and i had a decent amount of experience writing for performance and so we were able to sort of we were able to hit the ground running in a way that i think really really helped and that i would always i would always advise people a like get as much sorted as you can and as much prepared as you can before you pull the trigger on a show. Um, and I'd also, and this this is, it's a weird piece of advice to give, but I'd also advise people to make plenty of stuff beforehand that will never be published. I think there is, a, it, the fact that there is such a low barrier of entry to, to podcasting and, and to sort of in inverted commas po content production these days uh, is is in, in many ways a wonderful thing but I think it is there is always the pressure of pushing stuff out before you're ready I always think of like you know when I I mean I didn't start putting stuff out in in any sort of sort of professional capacity till my sort of early to mid 20s before that it was all sort of uh, stuff for my friends or um, stuff for like university societies these sort of smaller spaces where you can practice you can learn your skills you can you can sharpen your you know you, you can sharpen your abilities and i think often there's you know i i, I see people sort of uh 16 or 17 sort of being like oh we're, we're putting out a podcast and it's it's wonderful but i i and i i never want to be the sort of the person who's like well, just, just wait maybe like do, do it do it with your friends do it in a smaller in a smaller closed community learn those skills get a handle on it before sort of you truck because god i i literally shudder to think if i hadn't i mean i've obviously purged 
all my artistic works from online from my teenage years from the internet. But God, the idea if my deviant art still existed with my sort of weird writings that were just basically me paraphrasing Pink Floyd lyrics and pretending I'd invented them, you know. Sorry, I've largely forgotten the question. I just started <laughs> rambling. I do apologise. No, your answer was much better than my question was. Uh, but, uh, I guess also jumping off that idea of scale, um, how has your relationship changed with like both the podcast itself and uh, as the fandom, as it grew over time? Um, so my, my relationship with the podcast is it's always a mutable thing at the start it was very much uh it was, it was very much my baby in a lot of ways as it grew it became more of a more of a professional project i guess like the the uh it was much less me and my friends just sort of messing around and, and making a uh, making a show and much more of this you know this production line because there was a lot more involved in it because there was a lot more additional scheduling like uh, upgrading from just you know me talking into a mic to you know complicated multicast recordings and you know action sequences and all this sort of soundscape stuff very much changed my production relationship with it after it finished it for a while it was very much i i'm not someone who dwells a lot on previous projects i'm i'm always uh, both from a psychological perspective, I'm generally looking forward, and also from a, a practical perspective, you know, uh, as as a sort of creator who is successful enough to be just about scraping a living from it, but very much not curled up on top of a, a pile of podcast gold. There is always the sort of like, well, yes, that was that was wonderful, but I need to figure out what's paying the next six months' bills. So, in the immediate aftermath of Magnus, it was very much like enjoying having finished it uh but sort of moving on but over the years in between there's been that sort of little creative itch of like ah, what else could we do with this sort of concept which obviously as recently myself and alex have uh, started work and uh, did a kickstarter for the magnus protocol which is a sort of no it is a follow-up i'm i'm resisting the word sequel because i think that implies a lot about the show that is not true but it is uh, it is a, a, a follow-up to Magnus Archives, which I'm finding very exciting. In terms of the fandom, oh, it's a, it's a lot, I think, is the... Uh, and a very... It's been an education, I think, for me, in terms of how you can and can't interact with fans and fandom as a creator. Because when it started, it, it was lovely. It was a very small community, like... A handful of people that I mean, a lot of people that I knew personally, because you know, you, when you're starting out, your audience and your friends are a bigger Venn diagram. You know, maybe you would uh, you you would initially assume, but then as it grew, I was very much like, oh, this is this is wonderful. As a big fandom that you know, I can I can I am uh, I would describe myself as you know having a, a good, albeit somewhat deadpan sense of humor. So I there was a period where I was like, I can joke around with the fandom beyond a certain scale you cannot joke around with a fandom and like just the any fandom when it reaches a sufficient scale changes into something that the creator needs to leave alone and that's not a that's not a judgment on a creator or a fandom it is simply the case that when something is of a sufficient scale your interactions with it have ripples that will always be much bigger than anything you could have uh, anticipated like it was um <laughs> i had i had a tumblr ask recently 
which I I really rather enjoyed. That was asking, oh yeah, no, I'm just just wondering if uh, you know what 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 would you think the Magnus character's birthdays would be? And I had to be like, yeah, I can't I I can't answer that because because I didn't do it in the text, which means it would only ever be my head canon anyway. But if I give them a birthday, I'm also giving them star signs. And that is something <laughs> that I know for a fact would have ripples in the fandom because, you know, Star Science is one of those things that there is a certain section of fans who are very invested in and have their own very strong interpretations of different characters as different signs. And so what, to me, would feel like a very offhand thing of like, oh, you know, yeah, uh, the Archivist was born on the, you know, 14th of whatever or oh no the archivist has i don't know my birthday why not you know i can throw these things out very casually and you know people with blogs titled virgo john or death uh are suddenly like involved in huge fandom wars and i know that 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 i am i am exaggerating to a certain degree i know that people do not actually take this stuff as seriously as the way that online writing often makes it feel but I think the point remains that beyond a certain size, the creator has to leave a fandom to be itself. And, you know, maybe, maybe very occasionally you can just poke it a little bit. But if you do poke a little bit, you've got to understand, eh, you might get a little bit stung. So uh, you mentioned the Magnus Protocol, which is your newest project. How is that going? Well, I would say there's a very limited amount I can say about about it in terms of content at the moment. I can sort of feel Alex's uh, laser sight training on me. But we are currently putting the finishing touches on the show Bible. And well, it is the last couple of months have been my favorite part of any project, which is uh, where you are hammering out... I mean, you're hammering out all the ideas, you're taking these thoughts and concepts and fitting them together like a jigsaw into an actual into an actual structure, into an actual show. And like ideas you had, it's like, oh, we could we could do this. You're like, oh, we could do this. And that links up with this character, and then and that sort of back and forth of constructing I mean of writing, but like the sort of the grand scale writing rather than the you know actual typing out words unfortunately we're now at the stage where it's typing out words and that's that's less fun uh because you know i i am my my secret shame is i don't particularly like doing writing uh i don't hate it but it's it's it is a, a task it is work i often talk to people like no i can't i can't not write you know it just you know just flows out of me i i can't not write and i'm like well actually no Sometimes I think that they're really lucky, but also I know that that sort of that sort of writing is very prone to writer's block. If you are someone who enjoys a lot of impetus and inspiration for actual writing, if that dries up for any reason, it can hit you really hard. Whereas I, I am I am someone who I don't want to say squeezes writing out like toothpaste, but uh, like that that does feel or like or like carving wood or this sort of thing like it, it is a it is a a physical it is a low grade physical effort always but that does mean that even if i'm not feeling particularly inspired if if stuff is is not coming together naturally you know just sit down and do it you just sort of write something that is not particularly inspired and the secret is no one can really tell the difference because you can always tell when you were or weren't inspired with something you've written but 
one thing you discover putting out 200 episodes of a show is no one else can. People will look at the episodes that you have put out in like a sort of four in the morning, exhausted, just like throwing whatever you can think of down on paper and be like, it's the scariest. This is one of the scariest episodes of the show. And I'm like, okay. And other ones where I'm like, yes, I was on fire. You know, that was that one was from my soul. And they're like, yeah, it was, it was all right. So, um, but anyway, to return to Magnus Protocol, uh, it's going well. And there is there is a limited amount. There's a limited amount that I can say currently uh, because, uh, you know, spoilers. But um, I am really enjoying the writing process for this one. The Magnus Protocol, I believe you're co-writing it with Alex as opposed to being the key author. So yes, I mean, to, to be fair, the uh, I mean the Magnus Archives was also uh, co-written with Alex or, or co-create. It it's tricky to it's tricky to talk about because in in both cases we were both involved in the sort of the high level writing. Um, you know, we, we'd have these big meetings at the start of every season where we'd sit down and like hash out the actual story, uh, character beats, this sort of thing. In Magnus Archives, all the actual words were written by me and edited by Alex. In this one, a lot of them will be written by me and edited by Alex. Some of them will be written by Alex and edited by me. And uh, we've got quite a few guest writers in to uh, to do various uh, episodes within the within the the show as well. The exact proportions of who's doing what is still something that is that is in discussion with a few different writers. So I can't say, oh, I will be writing, you know, thirty of the ninety episodes. Uh, I can say that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing the sort of the key episodes, if that makes sense. So like the first and last episode of every season, a couple of like key ones within each season, and probably a few more. But uh, the actual story, the actual sort of, this is one of the reasons we're we're taking a lot longer on the on sort of the Bible and the planning stage is because we're bringing in other writers for for a lot of the episodes. Uh, whereas, you know, whereas with uh, Magnus Archives, we could have a very sort of slim season plan actually written down because, you know, I'd just be writing and I'd be I'd drop Alex a line and be like, uh, I think Martin should be more of a dick in this episode. And Alex would be like, you can't make Martin more of a dick in this episode. And I'd be like, I'm gonna though. With, with this one, we've got to make sure that everything is a lot clearer and possible for people that are not me and Alex. How does it feel to have guest writers getting their hands on your universe and your characters? So far, all right. I'm I'm going to reserve judgment until the uh, the final scripts start coming in. But as a general rule, I'm not particularly precious about my characters or my ideas. But then again, I am a bit of a perfectionist about well, actually no, I've I used to be a perfectionist, but that's something I've kind of beaten out of myself yeah largely by doing the magnus archives which was on a such a production schedule that i couldn't really afford to be perfectionist i always think of myself as someone who's not particularly precious about my ideas because you know i'm, I'm always happy when somebody comes back with an edit that says oh this bit's not worked i'm like okay great chucked um or when something's done and people are like oh can we do oh what, what if we do this in like fan fiction or this sort of thing i'm like yeah okay knock yourself out but this is a this is kind of a new one where it's going to be other people contributing things to an active project, which 
Actually, no, I tell a lie. That is something that I've, I've had before. One of our products for MacGuffin and Company, Odd Jobs, had a lot of bonus content by other TTRPG writers that, that we really like. And so if that is anything to go by, I will say it will be, I think it will be an 80% positive experience and 20% excruciating. Because when somebody when somebody gets your ideas and your worlds and uh, your systems and like they give something and you're like, this is great, I I would never have thought of this, but it fits perfectly, and I am excited for it to be a part of of this project I'm doing. It is a wonderful feeling, but yeah, thinking back, when there are bits that you're like, oh, I don't, mm. oh, I don't know if this fully fits. It can be a little bit, uh, it, it can be a bit of a challenge because then the question is, how, 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 how much do you get involved? How like. How heavy an edit do you do you give it, uh, and you know how much do you just sort of sit back and say no, I'm I'm being I'm being too controlling, I'm being uh, too perfectionist, and that's a balance that I am. Uh, I guess I'm going to find out. This is sort of leading into more of your thirteen stories. Um, the book quite leans into is quite political in a lot of ways. Yes. And how do you how do you find the horror as a critique of politics work well together? I mean, monsters are metaphors at the core of them. Horror is a, especially supernatural horror, is a genre which will always work primarily on a metaphorical level because it is always reflective of fears. And what you are afraid of is an intensely political thing, uh, I would say. The fears of the society in which you live, the society in which you've grown up in, what is portrayed as an acceptable target of fear those are intensely political things and you know you can go through the list of any classical monster and talk about what fear it represented at the at that time like you know the the the, the vampire is a really good example you know starts out as this sort of figure of of dread in terms of like sort of sickness of infection which then gradually metamorphosizes into a sort of kind of xenophobic fear, especially in things like um, Dracula. And uh, you have obviously the vampire by Polidori, which where, you know, the vampire figure is, I mean, it's basically him just being a dick about Lord Byron, but that ties it into ideas of almost social infection of the, of the vampire as parasite and then from Dracula, it gets very tied into the idea of sex. Um, and, you know, like, so there, there is a sort of uh, this mixing of the metaphor of parasitism, sex and infection, which, you know, its exact form changes throughout the 20th and 21st century, depending on who's writing it. And you can see, you know, in a, in a lot of slightly more right-wing fiction like the power of the 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 parasitism and the sex and the decadence tends to be what is portrayed as sinister about the vampire but it, it is one of these things where it is a very rich metaphor and it is a metaphor that is tied into a lot of history and a lot of aspects of society and how you use that metaphor like how you use that metaphor is something that you either actively and thoughtfully grasp hold of or it is something that you kind of just you're like no there's just a, it's just a monster yeah it's it's just a monster but it's never just a monster and if you're and if to your mind it is just a monster then all you're doing is allowing 
the fears that have been instilled on you by society to reach the page unchallenged. And so I think it is important in horror to to tie it to your beliefs and your politics, because otherwise you will almost certainly end up accidentally <laughs> espousing uh, espousing some very unpleasant things, because there are some very unpleasant beliefs and fears bedded deep down in society about like the other and uh, about a lot of things. So yeah, I, I do take a, especially in my books, I think I take a very active grasp of the metaphor and i say well what i'm what am i talking about here you know what 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 are these monsters and you know i i always feel that your ideal ratio is you want maybe one in 10 to one in 20 reviews to say that it's a bit preachy because if no one says it's a bit preachy then you've been way too subtle and you've written a, a story which people can be like ah you know, I, you can read it anyway, and people will miss any sort of metaphor or point you put in it. And if you are putting in any sort of point, if it is properly readable, at least at least five to ten percent of people will be like, "It's preachy," because preachy means I understood the message and I didn't like it. But yeah, anyway, uh, point is, thirteen stories and family business are, I, I, they are strongly political. I would say. Yeah, you were talking about like the fears there, and you in Magnus they're categorized into the fifteen different entities. Do you find that you end up leaning on those with other pieces of writing, or would you see those as completely different and only sort of connected to Magnus? Yes and no, though. So the fifteen fears and whatever horror I am writing in a new book, for instance, they both spring from the same place, which is my mind and the things I am afraid of. I, I I do not think, I do not look at, you know, a, a monster I, I write in 13 stories, for instance, and say, ah, yes, that's of the corruption. But, so I, I think there's a, I think there's a good, uh, like a, a good example is in 13 stories, one of the chapters is about, uh, I think it's called a spreading stain. It's about a, a stain that just won't leave a wall and, uh, you know, gradually becomes an obsession uh, for the man who, who lives in the apartment. And uh, I've seen a lot of people be like, ah, that's the corruption. And it's like, well, <laughs> yes and no. Uh, like, both the corruption and this story come from the fact that, like, I identify within myself, like, mold freaks me out. Like, that sort of, that sort of grime and dirt and uh, sort of, yeah, sort of spreading stain, that sort of thing, is a is a concept that I find very resonant in terms of, of horror and fear. So when it comes to... When I am reaching for a particular sort of metaphor, a particular sort of horror, it, it is there. And in the one case, it comes out in the, the sense of the corruption. The other case, it comes out in the sense of, of a spreading stain of this, this chapter. So it is... So there is definitely a connection there in that they both come from me, and I have I have but a single mind, and having categorized my own fears in these particular ways, I think it's it's you're you're going to see them quite clearly within the rest of my work, probably for the rest of my life, and uh, maybe less so as it as it goes along, and you know my fears change as I as I as I grow and change. But yes, it it, it turns out that chopping up your own sense of fear into uh, fifteen distinct forms means that when you are then continuing to write about your fears, those forms keep turning up. One thing that's been interesting about Protocol is I've 
kind of pushed Alex to take a little bit more of a more of a, a, a front role in terms of the metaphysics of uh, protocol because I didn't want it to be uh, just a sort of a rehashing of the metaphysics of the Magnus Archives. And it's gone in a really interesting different direction that I'm very excited about. Uh, so in addition to writing audio drama, you also write your novels, you write tabletop role-playing games. What's your process like and how does that differ from project to project? So um, a lot of it depends on who I am doing the project with. So obviously Magnus generally starts out as a as a, a uh, collaboration between myself and Alex so there's a lot of uh, writing sessions uh, the two of us which is very much a sort of back and forth very like we'll be going off in all sorts of directions and like then coming back and it, it's, a, it's a very freeform thing that we gradually nail down into a into a shape uh, and then that generally gets portioned up and uh, we'll go away and, and actually write our bits and then we'll edit and it, it's, it becomes much more structured Novel stuff, I generally try to just... I will generally take myself to a, a, a cafe if I'm struggling to work at home and just sort of kind of sequester myself and just try and do it in, a, in you know, over a, a month or so in a bunch of big sprints and then, you know, send it off to editor, get notes, rinse and repeat. With tabletop stuff, I... So my government company is myself and my partner, Sasha Sienna. So we tend to, there are sort of two different things. There's sometimes we will just eat, one of us will have an idea, we'll write it up, we'll hand it over to the other who will give it an edit, a little bit of a tweak, a polish, uh, and then I'll do layout and we'll either put it up on the Patreon or look into or try to figure out um, how we want to, to produce it. Other times we will, if we're, if we're doing a sort of a, a collaborative thing from kind of almost first principles, we will sit down and like it's it's kind of a much more measured sort of structural thing um, discussing we generally go system first and then build on top of that or if it's a world building thing we'll go a bit more free form and once we've once we've got the basics we will generally for any color, fully collaborative project we will choose one of us to be the sort of the lead editor if that makes sense, which just means that if there is any, if we can't fully land on an agreement about a specific point, the lead editor makes the call as to which way it goes. And then generally we'll split up the writing kind of half and half, we'll edit each other's stuff, and then the lead editor will synthesize it into a, a whole a whole piece. With other stuff, with other stuff it's generally commissioned writing, which is sort of a back and forth with whoever's doing the editing for that. So I'll I'll generally I actually I quite like doing commissioned writing because I have I, I really enjoy getting a getting a brief and figuring out what sort of interesting things I can do with the brief. And then I'll write something up, send it off, get edits back, rinse and repeat until uh, until it's the, the final uh the final thing is done. I, I think I so the exact nature the exact process depends on who I'm working with, but at the end of the day, the my process is is very is, is simply think, write, wait for edits. You mentioned both world building and systems for your tabletop role playing games. Is there one that you find either easier or that you prefer or that you approach very differently? So, 
system uh games design in terms of systems is something that i find it so the the way that people sometimes talk about writing is like oh i can't i can't not write i feel that way about designing role-playing game systems like um periodically i'll, I'll be reading a new book or playing a new game and something will just like click in my head and i'll just be sort of you know lying awake in bed for for hours just like tinkering with number systems and being like ah okay but if the if the dice system was like this that would affect and like i i'm not hugely mathematically minded but i i the number of times i will find myself sort of just lying in bed doing small maths to try and figure out what the the impact of certain mechanical twists would be is is surprisingly often so systems are something that i tinker with for fun and generally I'm generally always when when I kind of actually put them down, I'm I'm generally be like, oh, because then I've got to sort of lock them down, and they never they never work quite as well in the real world as they do it as they do in the sort of the probability palace of your mind. But world building is also a lot of fun, but it's much closer to the other sort of forms of writing that I'm I'm used to, where you know you're throwing ideas back and forth and gradually shaping them into a, a world and a story. Um. Well, I think we'd like to say thank you so much for coming today. That's, that's absolutely fine. I've had, a, I've had a delightful time. Thank you for inviting me. Um, we'd like to end on one question that we came across while researching you. Um, and it says, on your profile on the Rusty Quill website, you claim that, and I quote, that you have the two best cats in the world. Yes. What is it about your cats that you think that makes them better than every other cat in existence? Well, um, so we have two cats, uh, Sir Pouncelot and Ambassador Cat, otherwise known as the Ambassador. And I think what I'd say makes them the best cats in the world uh, is their little faces, I'd say. Point one, uh, they've got better faces, I would say, than the other cats. Second is their fur. It's very sleek, nice to, um, nice to, nice to sort of stroke. They will often uh, get on your lap, be very affectionate. And that's obviously, obviously makes them the best. And... Uh, also, their crimes, uh, big, big criminals, uh, of them. You know, very into stealing food, just pushing things off uh, shelves, just like you know, big time criminals. And fourth is just there's a certain je ne sais quoi. I would say that uh, just unfortunately does mean that other cats just can't quite compete. Uh, although poor Sir Pounce does have a little eye thing going on at the moment, uh, which we're having to to, to well, keep an eye on, uh, which is a shame. But he seems to be doing all right. I, I completely disagree with that, but you know. <laughs> no, that's 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 fine. Like I, I think I think it's important to have uh, a healthy uh, a healthy diversity of opinions uh, on a on on a on a podcast as to to who's the best cat. But uh, you know, I, I I hope that eventually. Uh, you can, uh, you know, come to see the truth. Well, thank you. Who, who, would, who would you say is the, is the best cat then? Um, my cat, Newt, is the best cat in the world. <laughs> Though I'm sure the rest of committee would also have disagreements. Yeah, no, I have to offer my cat Sparrow <laughs> best cat in the world. I would, I mean, I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy to award them uh, joint third uh, <laughs> as as the most recent cats that I've I've heard about. Uh, very happy to to offer them uh, a joint third place. All right, thank you again. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we end up? <laughs> um, 
obviously uh, Magnus Protocols coming up, so keep an eye out for that. Check out uh, my role-playing work with uh, Sasha at mcguffinandcompany.com. And uh, also, I've just put, I sometimes put out readings of old sort of classic ghost stories on Bandcamp, and I've just uh, put out uh, one which is The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. But you can you can find links to all that stuff through my website at jonathan-sims.com. And we've been Exeter Podcast, and you can find us at Exeter Podsock on Instagram and at Exeter Podcast on Twitter. So, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye.